Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. Matt, we're almost coming up on 30 episodes. How are you feeling so far? I mean, is this something that you thought you'd be uh, doing here two years ago? Now you're just a professional podcaster? Uh, I had no idea, but I feel like so many things at AES, you sort of just have to do things as they happen, and it usually goes pretty well. So Right. No, that's what I love about our company. And to come think of it, you know, 30 episodes, you know, average about 30 minutes an episode, that's almost 15 hours of good drilling fluid discussion. So um, certainly been enjoying it. Hopefully the listeners are too. Keep the comments coming. Keep the reviews coming. And Again, if you want to support the show, please leave a review. That's the best way to do it. Share it, like it, and uh, you know we just again appreciate all the support. And uh, talking about reviews and comments, Matt, we actually had another question come in uh, from one of our faithful listeners talking about CO two contamination. So I thought we'd tackle that today. What do you think? Sounds good. Perfect. Well, why don't we start off with uh, explaining maybe just briefly what what a contaminant is, and more specifically. You know, what CO2 is and, and how do we actually get how that enters into the mud system? So, I mean, w- with respect to CO2, uh, we get it a number of different places. I think the most common that we're used to or where we're really actually fighting it is, uh, you know, drilling into some downhole, just taking a little bit of gas. Um, and so it's it's a manageable situation. Um, our, our listener, Will, his point was that a lot of people probably don't actually realize that they have a CO2 or a carbonate issue. And the main reason is because, you know, like a lot of water-based mud contaminants, for the most part, you see some flocculation or the, you know, yield point goes up, the the fluid gets thick and you kind of say, okay, um, I'll treat that. Um, and so it's, it's easy enough to just overlook and think it's something else or not bother to diagnose it. So that was part of Will's request was, hey, could y'all try and clear the air on that? So we will, we will try. <laughs> nice. So Matt, what, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit more specifically about, you know, the mud properties. So, uh, and this, this, con- this really is more relatable to water-based mud, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So we'll focus on that. So what, you know, when we Drilling away, we start getting some CO two. What's uh, what are some of the first signs that we'll notice on a mud uh, a mud check that uh, starts to kind of make things go out of whack? So the things that affect drilling is is that you're going to see you know right away your your funnel viscosity. Um, that's usually your first indicator before you even start running a mud check. Is you start hearing that number go up a little bit, um, and then when you go to your mud check, you'll see your yield point, your gels. Um, They'll go up. Your fluid loss could go up quite a bit, um, although not always. Um, and then on your actual mud check, uh, you'd expect your um, some of the uh, filtrate alkalinities, your your PF and your MF to to go up, PF slightly, and then your MF to go up quite a bit. Um, and we'll have to you know kind of break down why that's happening. Um, but then otherwise, outside of mud properties. Uh, if you have a low pH or you're getting a, lo- a lot of CO2, um, you know, it can come across as an acid gas, uh, which means that uh, 
you could have some pretty serious corrosion issues, which could be pretty serious outside of just, hey, I can't keep my mud properties in check. But yeah, would you typically see that in a corrosion ring? I mean, because that corrosion is not going to happen instantaneous, is it? Or because it, would it happen more over time? So uh, as far as a, a lot of it, you'd see pitting. Um, so it could be, you know, failure related. Uh, some of it could be, as you know, by uh, some uh, some scale formation uh, that creates a concentration cell, um, and then otherwise just uh, general, you know, general pitting. So it's it's that risk of that failure mode uh-huh. um, where we're not just losing some general weight loss, we're we're actually losing chunks of metal that create a weak point. Sure. So. Well, where, I mean, you, you mentioned it a little bit, uh, kind of drilling through and, and taking on some gas, but what are some other sources of CO2 that, that we would encounter? So, um, you know, the air has CO2. So in trained air, where we talk about oxygen corrosion a lot, there's carbon dioxide there. Mm-hmm. Um, over treatment with products, uh, you, you know, some of our products actually have bicarb in them. Uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. So over treating... Um, I've read a few cases where it happens pre-treating for cement or over pre-treating for drilling through cement. Um, thermal degradation of products like lignite, lignosulfonate, um, that it's gotta be pretty hot, you know, well over 300 degrees for, for that to take place, but it's, it's a known phenomenon. Um, and another one I, in my prep, I, I came across was impure bayrite. Um, which I guess I could believe as, as much as, uh, you know, Barrett quality control is a big deal and gets a lot of focus. Um, you know, it's mostly Bayrite. And as much as we know, pure Bayrite is, um, you know, going to have a higher specific gravity than most stuff we drill with. What else is in it? Um, and, and checking for that or recognizing that it could introduce something into the system. It's a risk. It's a low one. I feel like for the most part, you know, on that side of things, people, they make a lot of claims about Bayrite and it turns out to be just something else with the mud. Right. Um, but can't rule it out now that we know it's there. Exactly. So, uh, you know, there's obviously ways to treat this stuff out. Um, you know, but uh, where I think a lot of people are, are hung up on is, uh, the, the different types at various, uh, pHs within the system. Um, and it's important to reach a certain pH in order to properly treat the contamination. So why don't we talk about that's kind of starting more off on the low pH and go higher from there. Sure. So um, what you're going to end up with is uh, you think about like ionic species um, is, is how it's described. So a different pH, you have the presence of different ions. Um, and so if you think of a low pH, that's your H plus. Um, so think about your acids all have that hydrogen. So hydrochloric acid is H2L, uh, HCl. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Um, <laughs> H2SO4, sulfuric acid. That's what we use in our titrations, right? Um, carbonic acid is H2CO3. So at a very low pH, um, I would have that carbonic acid. And then I start moving to the right, and I lose some hydrogen. And now I end up with HCO3, which has fewer hydrogens, and that's bicarb. Um, okay. That's your bicarbonate ions. We keep moving, we keep moving, we're losing hydrogens, losing hydrogens, and this is where we end up with our CO3. Um, so when you have a high enough pH, this is why raising the pH or uh, carrying an elevated pH um, redu- diminishes the effects that you would s- adverse mud properties because I'm getting rid of the the bicarb. Um, it's it's actually changing states because it's losing hydrogens. Okay, interesting. Um, above about eleven point seven, you wouldn't have any bicarbonate, but um, 
we don't really like to run muds that hot. Um, so uh, normally we're dealing in a in a range of you know nine and a half to ten and a half, that kind of thing. Um, so from a management perspective, we have to keep that in mind. But understanding where I am, you know, as far as those ionic species, this is where we kind of look at our ratios of our PF and our MF. Right. Um, and bear in mind that you do those titrations all the time, but um, sometimes we forget. So my, my, my PF, uh, these, are, these are soluble components, right? I took my filtrate, so it had to pass through the filter press. I have that filtrate. I start adding acid, and I see that color change at 8.3. And that's my PF. Then I continue to add acid, and I get um, uh, the 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 total volume. Then that, that I get to get my next color change after adding my other indicators, my MF. Mm-hmm. Right, so that's at four point three. So if you think about where you're at on that scale of of species, right, where it, getting my MF that that higher number indicates, well, shoot, if it took me a lot more acid to get through all the the bicarb um, to get that that four point three, I probably have bicarb so I, I compare the ratio of my pf and my mf try and figure out what where exactly i'm at on this scale okay. right um and so you know honestly if if you have an mf less than five mils it's probably nothing right. um, it should be fairly easy to raise your ph um you know not much should change um then if my mf is really high and my pf is low then in all likelihood, what I'm seeing is it's that bicarbonates, right? Because it didn't take much to get my pH to 8.3, but once I have all this, once I'm in that range of where bicarbonate's present, if it's taking me a bunch of acid to get my pH to lower down, it's likely that that's what was present. Gotcha. So PF low, MF high. And then if both of them are high, it's probably carbonate species because I have to push those carbonate species all the way down so it took me a bunch to to drop them out, and then I have to keep giving it hydrogen ions to drop, push it all the way down to that four point three pH. Um, okay, makes sense. And you can actually measure this with a Garrett gas train. I, one thing, Will, you have a great point. Garrett ca- gas trains are not fun to run. They can be, you know, error prone. My only sort of pushback on that is, um, you know, we, we do we do want to do the most simple. Um, for our situation, but I think we also need to um, recognize that this might be an opportunity to learn. Uh, if you think you have some CO2, get one out there. Yeah, Try it. Um, there's, you know, it, Garrett gas trains are important also for H2S. There could be critical moments when you would need one or want to quantify how to treat. Um, and so it doesn't hurt to learn this piece of equipment, even though we don't use it all the time. Um, and so that would that would just sort of be my my recommendation or or you know so, something to consider is hey this is a good time to practice especially with CO2 right and one thing i wanted to bring up and then i'm i'm having to dig deep into my memory bank here but when i was running mud offshore um on the shelf actually you know on a jack up and we we did experience uh you know we were running water based muds and we did experience a lot of issues with you know, carbonates and bicarbonates. And there was a rule of thumb and I forget what it was, but it was basically a ratio either with the, the MF and the PF or um, I forget what it was, but it was something like if it was greater than four, you were okay. Does that ring a bell to you? I can't remember the exact number. There's actually in some of these old school mud manuals, some really good charts where it's okay. If you don't want to change your pH, but you want to add lime or jip, 
you know, add this much if you, you know, kind of if this, this, then this, according to a table. Right. Um, it, you just have to know a few more components of your MUD system to be able to calculate them out. Um, certainly, the ratio between your, your MF and PF, uh, you know, matters and it, it should tell you because if, if they're close together, right, it tells you one thing. If they're, if they're far apart, um, it, it kind of gives you a pretty good indicator, like we've discussed where you're at, but I don't, I don't recall a specific number I ever committed to. Sure. Um, yeah, it's but a, it was one of those like, you know, kind of mud engineer rule of thumbs, uh, you know, there's no real science behind it, but it was kind of one of those arbitrary, uh, you know, factors in there. But well, anyway, no, they're not, they're not bad, especially for something like this, where it may be actually fairly difficult to narrow down exactly. Okay. Is it, is it carbonates? All right, yeah. check this out. Here's my ratio. It's there's definitely something going on here. Um, it's one of the best tells when you know water-based mud. Guess what? Most contaminants, the fluid loss goes up, the mud gets thick. Right. Um, let's let, we need something to to narrow it down a little bit. So sure. If anybody has a favorite ratio, send it into the show, and we'll share it with the world. Nice, nice. Well, uh, now that we've talked about, you know, what it does, you know, where it comes from and sort of the issues we have when dealing with CO2, uh, how do we actually go about treating this type of contamination? So probably the, the favorite is lime. Um, so remember, we've got that CO3 minus. So if, if we can introduce some calcium into the system, we can precipitate this out as calcium carbonate. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the key there is where I want my pH to be. Um, if I'm trying to keep my pH below, um, you know, 10 and a half, 10 um, you need to have some of that free calcium. So you're actually going to, you don't want to show zero here on your titrations. You want to show 150, 200. Um, but you'll, you know, you'll add lime, um, and, and that'll work out. Um, the other thing you can do is if you want the pH to be raised up a bit more, which isn't totally uncommon, um, add lime and gyp. Um, but you probably want your pH, uh, you probably don't want your pH below 10 um, uh, because you want that calcium carbonate precipitate. Um, the other thing you can do is, is we actually have a product that will help uh, scavenge CO2 called X out. Um, and so there are, you know, fancier treatments for lack of a better description that don't have as many effects on the mud properties. Um, there's a price to those, but uh, you know, if, if you're running one of these higher performance systems and uh, you know, well, lime is a very attractive, lime and gyp are attractive treatments for very basic mud systems. Others folks will say, Hey, um, I kind of don't want to introduce that into my polymer mud that doesn't like calcium or right. what have you. So um, there are a few other options out there uh, on, on the treatment side. Um, I think, uh, you know, a lot of folks when they, when they're not quite understanding this, they may add some lime and see, see the effect and say, Oh, well, I'm flocculated out of dispersant as well. Um, and what happens is because you keep seeing CO2 and you haven't actually treated it completely. Um, you'll just kind of see these swings of viscosity. You'll always be fighting properties where, um, if you can knock this stuff out, um, with the right treatment up front, you won't use as much product mm -hmm. um, and you won't need a deflocculant necessarily. Um, you may to tighten up properties, but um, you know, lime, lime usually does it pretty good. Uh, I'd say that's the standard 
jip if you want to hit it quite a bit harder. Mm, um, so I guess it just depends on how much you're taking. Sure. Awesome, Matt. Well, uh, look, I don't have any more questions and hopefully we covered Will's questions quite thoroughly. And, uh, you know, but again, if anyone has any sort of experience dealing with this as of recent, um, you know, or, or if you have any good war stories or any success stories on how you treated something like this, then uh, please feel free to share. Matt, do you have any closing last words on the, uh, with the world of CO2 <laughs> contamination? No, I, I mean, thank you, Will. I think this is a really good one. I, um, I think we may have to expand on this at, at some point in time or just these contaminants in general, because he's exactly right. Very, very few people, I think, actually make the distinction just because it affects mud property similarly. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually understanding what am I doing when I treat this? Yeah. Um, we probably don't ask ourselves enough uh, questions about, okay, what's, what's actually going on here? Right. Um, and, and CO2 is probably one of the best examples. Other, other contaminants you sort of know, you hit it, it's gone. Um, CO2 is something you can continually fight. And we know in a lot of the basins we drill in, we see it all the time. Right. Well, one uh, actually question that came sort of to mind that might be lingering out there is, is, uh, can you experience CO2 contamination in an oil-based mud? So what you're going to see is, I mean, you'll see it, right? So guess what? You're carrying that excess lime for alkalinity. Right. Um, and so you'll see that drop. It, It shouldn't really affect properties. Um, you know, gases are pretty soluble in the base oil. So it's, um, it's one of those things more so you got to be on the lookout for corrosion. It's not necessarily an issue. Right. Um, but sure. I mean, you'll, you'll detect it while you're drilling, you know, when it, when you come up at surface, you'll, those detectors will pick it up. Um, but obviously it's not going to be this dramatic, uh, effect on mud properties where you're fighting to keep drilling ahead because your mud got thick, for example. Makes sense. Cool. Well, that's all for now folks thanks again and uh please do us a huge favor and like it and share it thank you very much guys thanks for listening please tune in next week for another exciting episode of the flow line and remember may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees the program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice copyright aes drilling fluids